0: dag, mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Velkommen til Langsomme samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Jeg har længe haft lyst til, at nogle af de her samtaler skulle handle om de helt store spørgsmål. De spørgsmål, man stiller sig selv som barn, fordi de er de vigtigste overhovedet, men som man glemmer som voksen efterhånden, som man affinder sig med, at man ikke kan finde gode svar på dem. Det er spørgsmål, som handler om, hvad er mennesket? Hvad er naturen? Og hvordan er forholdet mellem mennesket og naturen? Og når vi med vores bevidsthed kan afdække naturloven i naturen, hvordan fanden kan det så være, at vi ikke også kan afdække nogen love for vores bevidsthed? Det er de filosofiske grundspørgsmål, som man lærer at forholde sig til som barn, som man lærer en lille smule af på gymnasiet og på universitetet, som er blevet formuleret i en bestseller sidste år af filosofen Philip Goff. Bestselleren hedder Galileo's Error. Good afternoon and
1: welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. At especially good afternoon and thank you very much for Philip Goff for being with us.
2: No worries, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Og jeg er meget glad for at kunne byde velkommen til min samtale med Philip Goff om alle de spørgsmål jeg stillede mig selv som barn og prøver mindes os alle sammen om at vi også skal stille os selv som voksne.
1: You're an associate professor of philosophy at Durham University and the author of Galileo's Era. And uh, and there's a more scientific work as well. Isn't that correct? That's called consciousness and fundamental reality.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure I'd call it a scientific work, a more academic philosophical work of aimed at people with a PhD in philosophy I guess that's that's the more detailed position that's the one I did first and then Galileo's era tries to explain it all in a much more accessible way to people with no background in the area
1: and, and I don't have a PhD in, philo- in, in philosophy and I had an enormous pleasure out of reading and, and discussing Galileo's era I think it's just a wonderful book and it's a very very it's a very generous book and it's it's a kind of book that makes you understand why philosophy is basically attractive to young people, because it asks just basic questions about consciousness and our inner life and the world and how it's all connected and the limits to our knowledge. And, you know, I think it's just a wonderful, curious and generous uh, books uh, that I'm so delighted that you'll talk to us about.
2: Oh, thank you very much.
1: That's great to hear. Yeah, I
2: think in many ways I'm inspired by the sort of philosophical intuitions that occur to curious 13-year-olds where you start to think I wonder if I'm in the matrix how would I know how would I know if what what it's like for me to see red is like is different to what it's like for you to see red would we ever know and I think maybe in, in the 20th century there was a period where people got a bit snobbish about those things or they're just childish philosophy I mean academic philosophers thought that's just childish philosophy and you read Wittgenstein and you grow out of it but I actually I I actually think those intuitions are solid gold and it was a it was a mistake to sort of you know treat them so so harshly in that manner.
1: But I think there's it's, it's also difficult to deal with these some of these questions today because if you look at when we're studying, when you read Aristotle or you read Descartes, you pretty much can access the thinking by your own rational thought as a philosopher or as a student. But today, if you wanna know how the world is constructed and our consciousness and, and the laws of gravity, then you come up against some, some science that's really, really difficult. Like, you know, I don't understand quantum physics and I don't understand the general theory of, of relativity. So I think that changes philosophy a bit, that, you know, it's like there are some scientific premises that, at least for me, are are difficult to to access. Uh, How how do you think that changes uh, philosophy?
2: Yeah, it's a really good point. I'm sort of jealous of people in the 17th century when it was (laughs) possible to know cutting edge mathematics and cutting edge science and cutting edge philosophy. Everything is so specialized now. I, I just had a, something published in Scientific American on the um, on, on probability theory and the and the multiverse argument, which has been in um, philosophical academic journals for decades, but nobody knows about it because <laughs> it's in these dense Bayesian probability calculus. So yeah, I mean, there's a real need for people to reach out and try to communicate in a way that's more accessible. And I certainly do that now. Every academic article I write, I I try to write a, a more accessible version. And I think the reason maybe people don't do it as much is we're trained to have watertight arguments and to cover all bases and to you know consider every possible objection. And when you do that, it gets very dense and it gets very complicated and the jargon comes in. So you just have to... To think, well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a bit looser. I'm gonna not give every possible objection. I'm just gonna write a a, a, a looser piece for the sake of trying to communicate because there's such a need. And especially with consciousness, I really think it is something that calls for interdisciplinary work. Some people think it's just a scientific question. We know we just need to let the neuroscientists carry on investigating the brain and we'll crack it. But I think actually we need to think about the philosophical underpinnings of the problem of consciousness. I, th- I would argue it's not just another scientific problem. There are many reasons in which it's very different from, from any other scientific problem. And, and we may even need to rethink our our scientific approach in order to properly deal with it so at those moments of time where the rules of the game are not totally fixed that's the time you need philosophers and that's the time you need philosophers working together with scientists and so we have the importance of reaching out by communicating your work
1: in in a more accessible format and and that definitely is part of the beauty of your book is that is that someone is asking some very basic questions that will have consequences for our scientific worldview and and what authority we give to science as we know it and how we maintain the the scientific rationality that we all appreciate and that we all want as a kind of firm firm foundation. I want to ask you first, what was your own road to philosophy? How did you become a philosopher yourself?
2: I can't remember not thinking about philosophy really. Actually, my parents tell me that when I was four, I asked, why are we here? <laughs> although, <laughs> although my theory is we'd actually moved house. So maybe I was just confused about the location. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just think I, I remember I was raised Catholic, actually. And I remember um, I asked the priest, you know, what happened to Adam and Eve when it was the Big Bang? So uh, it's that, you know, sort of trying to fit uh, the drive to sort of fit things together in in, a, in an overall theory of reality and you know an interest in the things that don't fit and and not for the sake of it it's not that i kind of like mystery it's rather that i don't <laughs> I, I want to understand how things fit in and and there are a number of phenomena that philosophers focus on that are hard to fit into our standard scientific world view free will might be one you know how do we fit free free human agency into the scientific story of a deterministic universe or roughly deterministic um, or facts about value you know how to right and wrong good and bad how do these kinds of facts if they are facts fit into the scientific story or or facts about abstract objects like numbers and sets you know these kind of timeless objects how do they fit in with the physical world But so there are there are many of these phenomena. I think consciousness to me is the most fascinating because with all of these other things, it's at least an option to just deny the phenomenon. Maybe we're not really free in the way we think we are. Maybe there aren't really facts about good and bad. Maybe it's just our subjective preferences. Some people even argue mathematics is a useful fiction. But with consciousness, it's, you know, it's so hard to deny that anyone's ever felt pain or anyone's ever seen color it's just the phenomenon seems so undeniable and at the same time it's proved so hard to fit into our standard scientific story reality which as you say many of us want to preserve so yeah i mean i've always had that drive to uh, get it get it all to fit together and, and that's what i try to do on consciousness in particular
1: and and i think we should help our viewers a bit a bit here because your book, Galileo's Era, is your suggestion of a solution to a very basic problem. Uh, and and how does consciousness fit in with our scientific worldview? Or there are two positions that don't go together and that, that don't explain consciousness adequately. And you, you offer a third position. If you just say, say basically, what is the problem that your book is offering a solution to?
2: You could simply think of it as... as um The problem of how the brain produces consciousness. And by consciousness, I don't mean anything magical or mystical. I just mean feelings and experiences, pleasure, pain, seeing color, hearing sound. How does electrochemical signaling in the brain produce this inner world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes that each of us enjoys every second of waking life? so it's it's broadly agreed now that this is a serious challenge as i say i think many people think it's um oh well it's just another scientific question but i think actually there are, there are reasons this is radically different from from any standard scientific challenge and that we really need to get clear on the philosophical underpinnings of the difficulty before before we can make progress and as you say there are a couple of traditional solutions, which when I studied philosophy, we were taught that they were <laughs> the only options. On the one hand, dualism, the view that consciousness takes place in the soul, you a know, supernatural entity outside of the physical workings of the body and the brain. And on the other hand, materialism, roughly the view that we can explain consciousness in terms of the electrochemical signaling in the brain. And I came to think that, you know, both of these options were, were deeply flawed. And actually, I just left academia and tried to forget about it altogether. But I was later led to slightly more unorthodox options that um, seem a bit wacky at first, but I think avoid the deep difficulties with these more traditional options. And um, and so that's what led me back to trying to make progress on this question
1: you describe an experience uh, in in your book that that was uh, changing or, or at least challenging your worldview uh, radically and it's not because something objectively miraculously ha- happens to you you it's it's you have you sit one night in a crowded bar you enjoy the taste of a cigarette and you felt the rush of nicotine uh, what, what, what was it that happened to you that night?
2: yeah, my, my wife thought I should take that bit out of the book. She thought it was a bit embarrassing and <laughs> cheesy. Um, but yeah, I well, to give a bit of background, I suppose, when I first started studying philosophy, I wanted to be a materialist because I love science. i'm I still, you know, <laughs> obsessed with science and and work, talk to neuroscientists all the time. So I you know, I thought that's the scientifically credible option. um, not like that superstitious stuff I was taught at when I was a child um but as the more i studied philosophy i just i came to think that it it can't really account for the reality of consciousness and i mean there's a huge debate here but the core of the problem is that physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary whereas consciousness essentially involves qualities if you think about the the redness of a red experience or the smell of coffee or the taste of mint. You can't capture these kinds of qualities in the purely quantitative vocabulary of physical science. And so as long as your description of the brain is framed in the purely quantitative vocabulary of neuroscience, you're just gonna leave out these qualities and hence leave out consciousness itself really. So I, I was persuaded of that, and and then so for, but for a while I just thought, well, it doesn't exist. Then if if science <laughs> if science can't deal with it, then it then it doesn't exist. And and I and I this is a position that's become known as illusionism. A friend of mine, Keith Frankish, is um, a proponent of this. thinks you know, science can't account account for consciousness, so it doesn't exist. It's you know it's just um, it's like magic or furry dust or something and 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 I, I really try to believe that, and I debated that, and I defended it to the hilt. and but I don't know what it was about that one particular night when I was just trying to, you know, I, I guess I was out of debate mode, and I was just absorbed in these rich experiences and and just the, the the qualities of my experience, the rush, the colors, the sounds, the the tastes, the smells, just the reality of them. The undeniable reality of them struck home in a way that I, I just couldn't really hold the intellectual position I, I, I had tried to hold to. It was a sort of clash between theory and lived experience. And and I just I just couldn't couldn't live with it anymore. Um, yeah. So, so, so
1: what, what so what consequences? I, I know. This is not like a revelation. This is more like something that you have this dialogue with yourself and you're de- debating someone and you're debating yourself and you have this, we have this ongoing inner deliberations all the time. You read something and then you have an experience that is like an argument in that inner deliberation, more like it's not like a, a mystic experience. It's not like described like that. Uh, no no it wasn't
2: mystical yeah i mean i guess as a philosopher i i'm, I'm always doing that actually is and i tried to get my students to do the same as attacking my own position like as a you know mono, a, a, a court a court situation in my head of trying to attack my own position to, to see if it withstands scrutiny and um but at that point no it wasn't a mystical experience it was I had decided intellectually, and I still think this, that our standard scientific approach, our current scientific approach, so not science, right? Not science, but our I don't think we should be careful not to confuse an allegiance to science with a dogmatic commitment to our current scientific approach. So I'm inclined to think that, you know, our current scientific approach can't account for the reality of experience, subjective qualitative experience, the colors, the sounds, the smells and the tastes. So intellectually, I decided experience didn't exist. Um, (laughs) I was just a complicated mechanism. And my brain was playing a trick on me, making me think I experienced all these colors and sounds and smells and tastes. But I didn't really, I just thought I did. And it was just, So, it wasn't a mystical experience, but just vividly feeling the reality of ordinary experiences the rush of nicotine the taste of lager or whatever that, that made me see that's not true <laughs> it's evidently not true because i i mean i agree with descartes that the thing that we are most certain of is the reality of our own experience and so it's peculiar to get yourself into a situation where what is less certain i mean i mean one way of looking at this is science is only possible because of consciousness you know, we 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 only we're only able to experience the results of experiments through our own consciousness. Consciousness mediates all knowledge of the world. So it would be peculiar if scientific knowledge could give us reason to doubt the reality of consciousness. As I say in the book, it's a bit like astronomy giving us reason to doubt telescopes or something. <laughs> we use our consciousness to know about the world. Um Yeah. So, so, so so not a mystical experience, but just a vivid sense of the reality of experience. Yeah.
1: And I think that's the very uh, interesting turn in your book that you say, well, in the scientific worldview that was established by Galileo and that we've come to take, take for granted, then, then we know and predict uh, the objects around us, but the consciousness we either call an illusion or we invent a dualism. So it escapes this, frame of explanation. And they say, let's start with the consciousness instead. Let's say, well, this is actually what we know the best. Let's make that the epistemological starting point, uh, our our own consciousness. And you draw some very interesting consequences from that. Could Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so the
2: reason for the title of the book is, I mean, I don't think we should be surprised that our current scientific approach struggles to deal with consciousness. Because if you look back at the history, our current scientific approach was designed to exclude consciousness. So in 1623, Galileo, the father of modern science, says right from now on, science is going to be purely mathematical, purely quantitative. But Galileo was also a great philosopher and he understood that you can't capture the qualities of consciousness in these terms, the the colors, the sounds, the smells, and the tastes. So he said, well, if we want science to be purely mathematical, purely quantitative, we have to take consciousness outside of science. We have to put it in the soul outside of the domain of science. So in in Galileo's worldview, there is this radical division between two domains, the quantitative domain of physical science, the physical world with its mathematical properties of size and shape location and motion and the domain of consciousness with its consciousness with its qualities of color and sound and smell and so on outside of the domain of science so and this i think this is really important so it, it was only once consciousness was out of the picture that mathematical physics was possible so this is really important because i think I think the reason people still cling to materialism is is the idea that look at the success of science. It's (laughs) of course, science has gone so well, physical science, of course, if this should give us confidence, it'll one day explain consciousness. But I I think that's the wrong way to think about the history of science. It's gone so well precisely because it was designed to exclude consciousness quite explicitly. So if we want to solve the problem of consciousness, we need to find a way of bringing together what Galileo separated, the, the quantitative domain of physical science and the qualitative reality of consciousness. We need to find a way of bringing them together into a, into a single unified worldview. And, um, and I think there are ways of doing this, which I explain if you like. <laughs>
1: I, I was thinking of that when I was reading your book. I think it's a very good title of the book. You know, it's just like, it's, it almost sounds like a movie. It's just, uh, you know, Galileo's era maybe the title could be a little misleading because what you're suggesting is actually not that Galileo was wrong, but that the next subsequent generations were, were wrong. And that was actually an, uh, the reading of Galileo saying, well, this is all there is. Isn't that correct? That it, 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 at least I thought first that you were saying that he was wrong, that the, it was his era. But But then the point is that he knew very well that this was not the investigation of all things in the world, all phenomena in in, mm. in the world. That that consciousness was not included in that.
2: Yeah, no, and no, no. I think I think you're completely right. Though it's it's a provocative title. Uh, I can't claim credit. Actually, my friend, the <laughs> philosopher Nigel Warburton, suggested it to me. But it's I mean, as you say, in in a way, I think I'm a huge fan of Galileo. <laughs> he got it completely right. Um, I, I think we're now going through, you know, humans always think that it's the end of history and they've kind of got it basically right. But I think we're now living through a period that I think historians of the future will look back at as a period where we were so totally blown away by the success of physical science, this quantitative method, um, that they think, oh, that's everything. That's the total story. And that leads <laughs> to a nice sense of security. We haven't got all the answers, but we know, we know how to get them. And, you know, this gets into people's identity and their sense of who they are. I mean, people talk of religion as a crutch, but in in a way, I think a certain kind of scientism can be a crutch. But the irony is, you know, it's gone so well because it wasn't supposed to capture everything. It was explicitly. Um, But so, I mean, what is the error? I suppose, strictly speaking, the error is that Galileo explicitly designed science in such a way that consciousness was inevitably outside of it and i think if if we now and, and but i i don't think that was necessarily a mistake it was probably necessary for a period of time to set that on one side what galileo essentially did was give scientists a more focused task he said you know just forget about consciousness for a couple of hundred years <laughs> just focus on what we can capture in mathematics but i think it's now time to bring it back in if we now want um a science of consciousness we need to find a way of bringing back in what galileo banished from science it doesn't mean um, we can't have a science of consciousness it means we need to rethink what science is because our galilean science scientific approach was was designed to ignore consciousness and is still ignoring consciousness to this day
1: so so you suggest what you call panpsychism and and we've in and this newspaper we've been flirting with all sorts of new age phenomena over the last 50 years. So everything that has "pan" in front of it and psychism afterwards, we're a little a little skeptical. But I, I want to reassure the, the viewers and our listeners that this is absolutely compatible with all sorts of, of rationality. But you also in the book say there is a history of this position. This is not just a position that was invented in 1995. That you go back to Bertrand Russell and I don't know if you mentioned Whitehead, but he, he was on to some, some of the same. So what's the history of this position that you call panpsychism?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it goes back to the dawn of philosophy in both Western East and um, and many of the great philosophers of the Enlightenment, Leibniz, Spinoza, uh, were panpsychists. But in recent times, um, I mean, there's been a, a rediscovery of it in many ways, and, and that's been prompted by a rediscovery, as you say, of certain important work from the 1920s by the philosopher and Nobel laureate, Bertrand Russell, and also by the scientist Arthur Eddington, who was incidentally the first scientist to experimentally confirm Einstein's theory of general relativity. And Whitehead, I'd, everyone shouts, lots of people shout at me on Twitter for not mentioning Whitehead enough, but I think Whitehead is a, is a key figure as well here, Alfred North Whitehead. Um, but and this was a, tragically forgotten about for a long time I, I always say that i i think they they did for the science of consciousness what darwin did a century before for the science of life but it for various historical reasons which we could go into it got forgotten about for a long time but it's recently been rediscovered in academic philosophy has caused huge excitement lots of publications and part of what i'm trying to do with this book is is get that out to a broader audience but yes yeah, so the starting point of Russell and Eddington is that physics doesn't really tell us what matter is and when I first heard that I thought that's the most ridiculous claim I've ever heard you know you read a popular book on physics of cosmology you know you find out all these incredible things about the nature of space and time and matter but I think what Russell and Eddington realized is that for all its richness physics is confined to telling us about the behavior of matter, about what it does, tells us how particles and fields interact, tells us about mass and charge. And, and these properties are totally defined in terms of behavior. Things like attraction, repulsion, resistance to acceleration. It's all about what stuff does. But intuitively, at least, and we we, we could perhaps question this, but at, sure. at least it's coherent to suppose there's more to what something is than what it does. So I like to give the analogy of chess pieces. If you're playing chess, you're interested in what the pieces do and what moves you can make, what pieces you can take. Um, but if you're someone who collects high-end luxury chess pieces, then you're interested in the substance of the pieces. You want pieces made of gold or silver rather than plastic or cheap metal. Um, So this is what philosophers call the the intrinsic nature of a thing, what it is considered independently of what it does. Um, So so coming back to fundamental particles, you may very well be interested in what physics has to tell you about what an electron does. Attraction, repulsion, resistance to acceleration. But you may also be interested in the, the intrinsic nature of an electron, what an electron is, Considered independently of what it does. And about this, physics just has nothing to say. So it turns out there's actually this huge hole in our standard scientific description of reality. Physics gives us rich information about what stuff does, but tells us nothing about its intrinsic nature. So, anyway, so I think that what's this got to do with consciousness? I think the genius of Russell and Eddington was to see the connection to the problem of consciousness. So On the one hand, our current scientific approach gives a purely quantitative description of the brain and in so doing leaves out the qualities of our experience. On the other hand, physical science gives us a purely behavioral description of matter and in so doing leaves out its intrinsic nature. So bringing this together, Russell and Eddington proposed a bold hypothesis maybe the qualities of experience are the intrinsic nature of matter from fundamental particles right up to the human brain. So so in the 1620s, Galileo separates out the qualities of consciousness from the quantities of matter. In the 1920s, Russell and Eddington found a way to bring them back together again. We can think that the quantities of matter about what stuff does and the qualities of matter about what something is, that they're inseparable, two sides of the same coin. So we le- led to a very elegant, simple picture of reality, as you say, can accommodate perfectly well the scientific truth <laughs> and is not proposing any anything mystical or mysterious. Science tells us absolutely what stuff does, but it also accommodates what you might call the human truth of and by that, I just mean the evident reality of our feelings and experiences. It brings it both together in a single unified picture of the world. So that's that's the basic idea.
1: And what is very, very challenging as a reader, when I wasn't acquainted with it before, I, I stumble upon the word, but I wasn't really forced to go through the reasoning of panpsychism before, is of course that you say, well, maybe consciousness is not exclusive to humans. Maybe we should think of consciousness as something that is not just in in our minds, but but is, is on different levels and, and has different shapes. And and also, in the beginning, I thought of it as, as an anal- analogy to my own consciousness, that well, this, just put it uh, crudely, this chair cannot think like I can. And then I read again, you say, well, actually, you don't say that it has human consciousness. You're saying, well, this has another kind of. Consciousness. But it is very, very hard to understand that there should be levels of, of consciousness. How do you explain that? And I know it's a difficult question, but it's your book, so I can ask.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's important, I guess, not to be anthropocentric about consciousness, to model everything on
1: hmm.
2: human consciousness, which is after all the result of millions and millions of years of evolution by natural selection. So nobody's saying that an electron has the consciousness of a human being, that it's sitting there feeling existential angst or something. But consciousness comes in many varieties, even the forms we know about, that human consciousness is very complex. The consciousness of a sheep is much simpler. The consciousness of a mouse, simpler again. And as we move to simpler and simpler forms of life, we, we we find simpler and simpler forms of experience. Do bed bugs have experience? If they do, it's so much simpler than that of a mouse. of a mouse, for example. Um, so according to panpsychism, this can keeps going down this process of simpler and simpler forms of life, having simpler, simpler forms of experience, just keeps going right down to the basic building blocks of matter with perhaps ele- electrons and quarks, fundamental particles having almost unimaginably simple forms of experience to reflect the unimaginably simple structure. I mean, not they're the incredibly simple structure. And then the, the thought would be that the very complex structure of the human or animal brain is, is somehow derived from the from the very simple experience of the, of the brain's most basic parts. So 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 that's that, that's the basic picture. And. I mean, part of this is maybe the word consciousness is so ambiguous. We don't mean something like self-awareness or something, you know, reflective awareness of your own existence. We just mean experience. And it's quite coherent for experience to exist in very, very simple forms.
1: And I and I think it's very convincing when you say, well, we are the we are the object that we're most familiar with. My consciousness is what I know. Uh, firsthand and everything else mediated through that. So, so that actually makes methodological sense to me that, okay, I'm mm. the only object that I know like this. So I, I've never been a chair. I've never been something else. And and I see that it, it really solves the problem of either you put consciousness outside of the material world or you say it doesn't really exist as the qualities that you mentioned before. But I was thinking that it, it doesn't it kind of... Um, remove the, the the you know we think of human beings as sacred as being something special that we are unique creatures in the world and and now it's kind of there's a scale in, in, in panpsychism between the levels of consciousness that challenges the extent to which the human being is something absolutely unique in the world
2: yeah so the the way you started talking then was very much how eddington thought about it i mean i think when you're in the mindset of thinking that physics is giving us this complete story of the nature of the universe, then panpsychism is is clearly implausible because physics isn't telling us electrons have experience. It's hard to see how it could tell us that. But once you've fully absorbed this epistemological starting point that, you know, epistemology meaning to do with knowledge, this starting point that actually physical science is just telling us what stuff does. It doesn't really tell us the intrinsic nature of anything. It doesn't really tell us what stuff is. Once you really absorb that and you realize that the only thing, physical thing, I do know the nature of is my own brain.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and I know the nature of that, that. That involves a consciousness involving nature. And that's really the only thing I do know about the intrinsic nature of matter. From that starting point, the most simple, elegant, parsimonious proposal is that the stuff outside of brains is continuous with the stuff inside of brains and also having some kind of consciousness involving nature, although a bit of a very different kind. But as you say, yeah, I mean, in a way it leads to, as I sometimes put it, a, a, a new Copernican revolution, you know, yeah. that in the first Copernican revolution, you know, we gave up our privileged place in the center of the universe. Um, you know, in the second, we cast aside the idea that, human consciousness is something special that only human beings have a qualitative as well as a quantitative nature um you know human consciousness in this view is just a highly evolved form of 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 what exists throughout the universe so yeah in a way it 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 leads to humans not being very special but in a way also it's a picture of the universe in which we fit in and we can understand our our place within it, you know, we are conscious creatures in a conscious universe. It's a it's a universe maybe we're a little bit more at home in and we can understand how we fit into it and feel a little bit more comfortable in our own skin perhaps.
1: Yeah, and and, and you could turn my point or position around and say, well, it was actually the, the belief that human beings were unique and the rest of the world were just materials for human beings to realize themselves that led to the destruction of the climate and the, that led to the destruction of, of nature, that this position that I am defending because I grew up with the humans being so so special, that actually was the worldview that was the premise of, of climate change. And the reason why I bring that up is of course, because you say yourself in the last part of the book, that that panpsychism can also help us not solve climate change, but, but actually create a mindset that will make us more sensitive to the needs of, of nature or the objective world around us.
2: Yeah, so Naomi Klein and others have talked about this, that the the inherent dualist picture is very much part of the, the Western domination of, 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 the, um, of the natural world. I mean, if you think that a tree is just a mechanism, then your conception of its value is just in terms of what it can do for us. Um, hugging a tree is sort of stupid. It's hugging a mechanism, you know, and we ridicule the, the hippies of the 60s on this grand basis. But if you think a tree is a conscious organism, albeit of a, a very unusual kind, very different to us, then a tree is a locus of moral significance in its own right. Mm. Chopping down a tree is an act of moral significance. So, you know, we're all shocked by terrible burning of forest fires in Brazil, for example, if you see that as the burning of conscious organisms, I think it does add an extra moral dimension here. Um, You know, there are countries that have given legal rights to forests. And um, I saw a philosopher recently in our department give a talk on trying to make rational sense of this. They were desperate to, (laughs) to make rational sense of how a how a forest can have, can have a legal a, mo- a legal right if we think legal rights are grounded in sort of moral rights. And it's I, I would say it's impossible to make sense of if you think of them as just mechanisms. But if you think of them as conscious organisms, then it starts to make sense of trees having rights in the way philosophers like Peter Singer have come to think of animals as having rights, that um, we can start to think of tree liberation in the way Singer has thought about animal liberation. Um I'm just, I mean, more generally in a more subtle way, you know, I think I'm inclined to think our our, our current scientific worldview is inconsistent with the reality of consciousness. Um, So, you know, I'd invite people listening to, again, attend to the qualities of your experience, the colours, the sounds, the smells, the tastes. Our official worldview tells us effectively those qualities don't really exist. All that's really going on in your head is the purely quantitative story of electrochemical signaling. And so I think we're, uh, we're in a strange visible more official worldview denies the reality of that which is most evident and also that which gives human life value. And, you know, it's it's consciousness from subtle thoughts to deep emotions that, that gives life meaning and value. And I think, you know, when your worldview doesn't make sense and doesn't allow you to make sense of the meaning and value of your life, I think people turn to alternative ways of making sense of the the meaning of their life, you know, consumerism or nationalism or fundamentalist religion. So I always want to add as scientists and philosophers, we should be thinking not at the view we'd like to be true, but the view that's most likely to be true. I think there's a good case for the probable truth of panpsychism as as the best account of how consciousness fits into our scientific story of reality. But I also think it's it's a it's a worldview that fundamentally makes sense and within which we can make sense of the meaning and value of our lives. And so, I like to think, you know, maybe from that solid foundation, we can perhaps start to build a society that is more rooted in, more consonant with, the meaning and value of, of human existence, those things which I think are difficult to make sense of in our official scientific worldview. So I think in subtle ways these things do have worldview, does have political as well as philosophical implications.
1: And my, my, my last question goes back to my first question and also relates to what you just said, is that when I read your book, I felt this was something, who, this was a book by someone who was very eager to make philosophy important to people that this was a book written to someone outside of the academy. And that, that can be very difficult because of some of the knowledge that, that, that is inherent in, in, in science today and that we must to a certain extent understand in order to really meditate on these issues. But you wrote a book that is very, very, very accessible and, and makes you very, very curious and it's a very generous book. How, how do you see the role of the, of the philosopher today it's like a, a character from the old days, or you know, you couldn't see a movie about a philosopher today. But but yet, you really are engaging in public. You're coming here, talking to us at this newspaper, which we are very very grateful for. How, how do you see the position and the the privilege of philosopher in public debate?
2: Yeah, so I, I think it is. I think so many people don't really understand what philosophy is, and and certainly don't think it 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 has a role to play in finding out about about the universe I think people think maybe it's the job of science to tell us what the universe is like and then maybe philosophers can come along and make us feel a little bit better about that somehow or re- resign us to the reality that, that that science tells us about but um I think I mean I I think that the, philosophy is important in two ways at the very least philosophers offer conceptual rigor. Uh, you know, analyzing questions and analyzing the logical structure of arguments and where there are maybe subtle confusions in the way scientists are approaching a question or there's a need for conceptual clarification. That's one role of philosophy. But I also think that that there's a deeper role for philosophy. Um, So I think the current idea of science is that it tries to account for the data of public observation and experiment. But I think if you religiously followed that methodology, you wouldn't believe in consciousness because consciousness is, is not known about on that basis. We we know about consciousness not from public observation and experiment, but from our immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. If you're in pain, you're just directly aware of your own pain. So I think there are things we know to be real and we need ac- accommodated in our scientific theory of reality that don't come from public observation experiments, such as the reality of consciousness, such as the reality of numbers, the the kind of entities mathematicians talk about, perhaps facts about value, perhaps facts about human agency. So there there are things that we know to be real that we need to fit into our worldview. So I see the job as the philosopher as taking what we know from natural science but also taking things we know to be real in different ways and fitting them all together in a single unified picture of reality. And I think people are slowly rediscovering that role of philosophy, probably most obviously because of the reality of consciousness that clearly exists and clearly needs to be fitted in somehow. And it's a challenge to see how.
1: And you've given us such a nice exercise of that and such, a, and you've been such a nice example of, of just doing that Right now, thank you so very much for taking your time and talking to us. And I want to recommend your book to all our viewers and listeners. It's really a good read. Thank you so much, Philip.
2: Thank you, Una. Thank you so much. In great chatting.
0: Det var min samtale med Philip Goff, filosofen som har skrevet Galileos Error, der blev en bestseller i 2020. Hvis man ikke vil nøjes med bare at lytte til samtalerne her, men hvis man også vil læse dem, så kan jeg anbefale, at man går ind på nu og tegner et gratis prøveabonnement. Der kan man prøve information gratis i en måned, og så kan man bagefter tage stilling til, om det er noget, man har lyst til at betale for. Og hvis man ikke har lyst til at betale for det, så kan man blive ved med at høre til de langsomme samtaler. Og det bliver ved med at være gratis, det kan jeg love. I næste uge, der skal jeg tale med den franske venstrefløjs intellektuelle kulturskribent og meget, meget interessante stemme Caroline Forest. Hun har skrevet en bog der hedder Generation krænket, som handler om hvorfor det er venstrefløjen der skal sætte grænse for identitetspolitikken. Hvorfor det er venstrefløjen som skal sætte grænser for de tendenser til tribalisme, der kan opstå på venstrefløjen, at det kan man overhovedet ikke overlade til højrefløjen. Hun har lavet en gennemført radikal kritik af det, hun kalder for identitetspolitik, og hun forklarer i samtalen med mig i næste uge, hvorfor det er et venstrefløjsarbejde. Jeg håber, vi høres ved.